Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth in Rhythm Mothership, Judy Worrell wife of legendary Parliament Funkadelic keyboardist, producer, composer, and arranger, Bernie Orell. A classically trained musical prodigy from 1970 to 1983, Bernie Orell was a core architect of P-Funk's innovative sound and wrote dozens of all-time great funk songs. He continued to blaze a sonic trail by lending his singular stylings to recordings by the Talking Heads, Bill Laswell, M. Toomey, Bootsy Collins, Keith Richards, Ginger Baker, The Pretenders, Doug Wimbush, Les Claypool, and many others. He also released a dozen albums under his own name and toured with the Woo Warriors and the Bernie Worrell Orchestra. Bernie, who passed in June 2016, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997 with 15 other members of Parliament Funkadelic, and his musical impact and importance, particularly on electronic keyboards, cannot be overstated. Judy, thank you for joining me. How are you today? fine uh your last sentence made me smile electronic keyboard bernie's favorite keyboard was a hammond b3 with a leslie and grand piano bernie was more into acoustic um well what, what is the analog he always complained about how digital was so cold mm. interesting 
Yeah. So, um, Judy, where are you today? You're you're in the Washington state of Washington, right? Yes, I am. All right. I'm about 20 miles from the Canadian border. Oh, I love it there. It's so beautiful. Yes, it is. Hopefully not too much rain. You must like the rain. I hate humidity and heat. <laughs> it's not that I hate the rain. I, I, I could do with a little less of it, but I prefer the weather here to where Bernie and I lived in New Jersey. But of course, I preferred Canada more until we moved to Jersey. Well, Judy, um, I want to jump in if we could. And, you know, Bernie was a child prodigy and uh, you moved to New Jersey at eight years old. Can you share with us? No, 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 no. Bernie was a child prodigy who played, who was taught classical music at the age of three. At the age of four, he played his first classical um, piece, which was a minuet written by Mozart when Mozart was five. Bernie was born in Long Branch, New Jersey, but his parents moved to Plainfield at, uh, I think, around age eight. That's where the confusion sets in for some people. He was actually born in Long Branch, New Jersey. Okay. All right. Good to know. Thank you for setting that straight. I think we're going to set a lot of things straight is my hope here. Um, so, Judy, what can you tell us about Bernie's life aside from that, you know, before he connected with George Clinton, you know, uh, what do you know about his life before then when he was younger and, and just, you know, developing his musicality? Only what he's told me because I didn't grow up anywhere near him. Um, I know that he went to a Catholic school in Scotch Plains. I know that he played he wrote his first concerto at the age of eight, played with the Washington Symphony at the age of 10. Uh, took his, his, he had two uh, teachers in New Jersey. One was a lady named Adelaide Waxwood, who strangely enough, he told me, moved to the state of Washington when he was young, and he lost contact with her. And then Mrs. Kent, who introduced him to Professor Nogi and all of the other advanced classical teachers where he learned theory and harmony. Um, from there, he went to the New England Conservatory of Music, where he majored in classical piano, and he was short a half semester when he left. And the reason he left was his dad died, and he went to work to support his mom. And from there, the first not the first. Well, he told me about a lot of gigs he had when he was in college. He played behind, um, <laughs> what was that a lady comedian name who dressed horribly? Phyllis Diller? Back around the time of pick. No, 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 no. Black woman comedian. Oh. Mother. Mm. Mom's Mabley? This was back around the time of, <laughs> yes, Mom's Mabley, Red Fox. He played uh, with. Uh, Bill Elliott, who later married Dionne Warwick. He played with behind um, Chubby and the Turnpikes, later known as Tavares. 
Uh, he did a lot of work before he joined Maxine Brown, and that's when I met him, because she's my daughter's godmother. Not that she seems to remember it. <laughs> About what year was that, Judy? Good Lord. Let me think. My daughter, daughter was born in 1966, so it must have been around 67, 60. I'm not good with dates. Probably 67, 68. And, you know, would you say Bernie was, what was he like as just a guy? Was he introverted? Was, was he jovial? You know, what was he like? It depended. When I met Bernie... He was very quiet, introspective. He was not one of these people that just runs off at the mouth. Um, in the beginning, we talked a lot. Bernie, in later years, would always say, I ain't about words. Um, but I think what he really meant was so many people asked him the same questions over and over again, over well, he and I were together almost 50 years, so at least 50 years. Wouldn't you get tired of being asked the same questions? But if somebody asked him something that interested him, yeah, he would talk. Hmm. But he was just uh, more comfortable maybe letting the music do the talking? Exactly. Absolutely yeah. right. So you guys uh, met shortly before Funkadelic launched or after? Oh, definitely before. Bernie was on tour with Maxine. I think he was in Bermuda or the Bahamas, and he called me and told me that George had called him and wanted him to come do a gig or something. So he asked me would I go meet with George. And I said, sure, because I didn't know anything about a George Clinton. Uh, I wish it had stayed that way. <laughs> um, so I went to the Apollo and um, walked the gauntlet of all the guys and their mouths. And finally, this apparition walks through the door in a white sheet and barefoot in a new, on a New York City street. And there I am in a three-piece suit. Anyway, yeah, I negotiated Bernie's first contract with George, which was the first of many that he went on to ignore. Hmm. What was your first impression of just the group overall? Well, the first time I saw them was backstage at the Apollo. So I didn't have any impression. It was just a mob of people milling about. The next time I saw them, Bernie was performing with them at the 20 Grand in Detroit. And again, I didn't think anything of them because my focus was on Bernie, not all these crazy people. And I came from a very conservative background, just like Bernie. Because when I asked Bernie what George was like, he said, um, he's crazy. So what kind of music were you listening to at the time, mostly? Same as I've always listened to, everything. As a matter of fact, one day Bernie came home, and I was cleaning the apartment, and I was playing classical music, and he smiled at me and said, I know you like classical music. I said, well, my father determine what each of us got to play and my sister Linda got to play piano because she had long beautiful Revlon hands and I had these short stubby fingers so when she left the piano I would go over find middle C and then figure it out from there he said you got absolute pitch I said what's that and he told me 
So I like everything. My father, my mother was into crazy stuff. I wasn't into like, um, what is that guy's name? Oh, he had a band. My father, of course, was into Duke Ellington, uh, Louis Armstrong. We were into all kinds of music. All kinds of music was played in our house and in the car. Were you thinking of Louis Jordan? Is that who? No. Uh, oh, it just almost popped in my head. Lawrence Welk. Ah. Uh-huh. And I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. I leave the room. I understand. My my father used to play that too. That show when I was growing up, and I just didn't get it. Well, I didn't hate it. If I could listen to the music, I always liked music. It was the visual that was a total turnoff for me. Mm. I, mean, I didn't live in a totally white world. Nobody does, and I'm. I was glad when TV finally expanded. What uh, you know before you really got to know some of these guys in the group a little bit better, you know, what were your early impressions of, of people like George or Eddie um, or, or Bill Nelson? I'll tell you what, let's take it one by one. Let's take it one by one. And I'll tell you, let's start with George Clinton. When I first met George, I liked him. George is a highly intelligent person. Um, We used to talk about books. Matter of fact, I was the one that gave him the first book on the Pleiades. I gave him a book called Garden of Eden, which talks about for every illness on earth, the supreme being has a plant. Um, I enjoyed talking to George in the beginning. But then, unfortunately for George, I watched him very carefully. Here's a story about George that nobody with Bernie knows. I love to read. I am the kind of person that if I'm in the bathroom in your house and you don't have a book there, I'll read the back of the toilet paper wrapping. So I was always sitting, reading a book, smoke a cigarette, having a glass of wine. One day, getting ready to go on stage, George walked past me and reached down and put something in my hand, a wad of something. I looked at it. It was money wrapped up with rubber bands. So I'm like, oh, God. And I just shoved it down in my pocketbook. And when he came out, and walked past. He held his hand out. I stuck it back in it. He did this several times. And Bernie said, I told Bernie about it, of course. And Bernie said, well, you know, he trusts you. Unfortunately, I never saw how much money was there. Because <laughs> I might have taken Bernie's pay out of it. Yeah, well. But on the artistic side, you could see there was something there. But on the business side, obviously left a lot to be desired when it came to the music artistic side or anything like that at all i didn't do anything that was always bernie's if bernie wanted to play something bernie did it all i did as time went by was facilitate it and then when he asked me to be his manager make sure the paperwork was correct period the only time i had any input at all was when I co-wrote two songs with P-Funk. One was Red Hot Mama. And in George's biography, or whatever that is, he admits that I am the uncredited writer for parts of Red Hot Mama. And I wrote the second stanza of Living the Life on the Osmium album. The part that goes, a a tree planted by the river water, Homo sapien pollutes the air. No more trees, the highways are coming. 
mankind is progressing. I wrote that. Hmm. And I'm not credited on that either. <laughs> I think there's so many uh, non-credits throughout the whole catalog. Yeah, well, we all know why that is. How did you get involved with Red Hot Mama? You know, what was the circumstance? Bernie was in the studio with George. And I don't remember what Bernie was doing, noodling around on a keyboard, I'm sure. And George was writing out lyrics. And he got stumped. And I said, what about, and I don't remember exactly all of it, but it was started out with um, taxi dancers and big time spenders. I remember that because I had explained to him what a taxi dancer was. How did you feel when you heard the final recording of that? Did you take some pride in that? In what? Red Hot Mama. Red Hot Mama? Yeah. You mean it? No, not particularly. I have more pride in the lyric I wrote for, the stanza I wrote for Living the Life because it was reviewed as possibly one of the first songs mixing ecology and religion. That I was proud of. That is something to be proud of. That album was so eclectic. Really fascinating record, Osmium. Well, it makes no difference to me because I never got paid for it. I never got credited for it. Typical George. I was just going to ask if you if you felt like, you know, what Bernie and, and the band, what they were doing at the time was, you know, cutting edge and uh, they had a chance to, you know, be as impactful as it as it was. Let me tell you a story. When I graduated high school, my father moved us to Canada because he said he didn't want his daughters, and there were three of us, ever marrying a black man in the United States because the United States would never let a black man achieve anything unless they were possibly athletes or musicians, and he didn't want us with either one of them. So I married a musician, <laughs> and my sister married a football player. But we didn't do it to defy my father. So the roundabout answer to your question is, I already knew how racist this country was. And I already knew what a long haul it would be for them. I mean, when the Rolling Stones come out with a song like The Bitch Is Back, and it goes on the radio, but P-Funk songs won't go on the radio, what do you think? I kept trying to get Bernie to move back to Canada. And we eventually did. Sad state of affairs, racially, with music oh, yeah. at the time. Yeah. At that time? Well, still today, but especially then. It has never stopped. It has never stopped. Let's look at the jam band circuit if you want to talk about racism in the United States. When the jam bands first came out, how many black groups did you ever see with any of them? And yet, T-Funk, in my viewpoint, in my limited experience, of course, was the original jam band. I was there. When they were playing on stage so long, they would turn the amps off, shut the lights off. They were the original jam band. But people know this. I, I consider the entertainment business, particularly the booking um, people, some of the most racist in this country. They're the ones that separated everything into 
what Bernie absolutely hated, genres. You know, as a matter of fact, to this day, um, there's a certain site that you go on. I forget which one it is. They don't even have funk as a genre. Oh, yeah, They recognize jazz, hip-hop, and rap. So let's talk again about how things have changed. Not. Yeah. Well, that's what inspired me to actually write a book on funk because none existed um, at that time, you know, and I've always been. It just kills me that it's not recognized as a genre as it should be with all the other prominent genres. And then the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame keeps overlooking all these groups. So, yeah, you're right. It definitely continues. Um, so let's continue. You talked about George. What were your impressions of Eddie Hazel? When I first met Eddie Hazel, I looked at him as a big, goofy kid. Not that he was goofy and not that he was a kid. The women that chased after him definitely didn't think of him as a kid. But there was a quiet, sensitive part of Eddie that I saw because he was around Bernie. And when he was around Bernie, I think he was his himself. He wasn't being anybody but Eddie. Of the Funkadelic, the one that I had the most respect for was Billy Bass. I think when I met Billy, he was being mistreated, ignored, whatever, because he was young. And then George didn't like him because Billy would call a spade a spade in a heartbeat. Um, and George didn't like defiance. But for talent, intelligence, Hands down, Billy Bates gets my respect, and still does. Tao, I didn't know very well at all. I thought there was something a bit off, and I was compassionate, but I was never around him. Peaky Fullwood, I thought was the funniest, <laughs> one of the funniest people I ever met, and I was shocked and hurt when I heard that he had died. Um, as for Parliament, Ray Davis was the only one of them I considered a friend. He, Eddie, and Bernie were all Aries. And they were all, in their own ways, shy. Um, I could see it because of when Ray and, and Bernie were together. You don't see that when they're on stage or they're backstage and the fans and the groupies are all over them. Um, Calvin, I didn't know at all. I don't think he liked me any more than I liked him, and I don't know why. Uh, who else? Grady, I just didn't think about it all. I never saw Grady do anything. Um, so I have no opinion about him. Except to rectify something that Bernie said one time, which was that Grady was the one that wore purple first. No. I've been wearing purple since I was about three or four. And then, who else? Oh, Fuzzy. I used to call Fuzzy Bernie's road wife. Because they roomed together. Um, I remember Bernie coming home one time telling me that Fuzzy had told him bringing me on the road was like bringing sand to the beach. And Bernie said, what does he mean by that? I said, he's telling you that there are a lot of women out there. Why do you bother to bring me? And he said, well, what do I say to that? And I said, tell him it's quality, not quantity. And he laughed. He said, oh, I like that. All right, I'm going to tell him that. <laughs> so I didn't have any respect for them. I mean, they all seem to be, see themselves as traveling, not even gigolos, 
I don't even know what to call. Um, and I didn't pay too much attention to them because once I found out that Bernie wasn't getting paid, I went back to work. And when I was in Detroit, I worked as a Playboy bunny because I had been a Playboy bunny in Montreal. What about um, Bootsy? What were your first impressions and overall of him? Well, when Bootsy and Catfish came along, um, I didn't know anything about him. I just saw this tall guy with his brother, and they used to laugh a lot together. Um, I interacted more with Catfish than I did with Bernie because Catfish had two Shih Tzus. And I'm a dog lover and a dog rescuer. So when I met Bootsy and Catfish, I liked and respected both of them, and that never changed. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, from the outside, Bernie and Bootsy had just a really special relationship, at least musically. I figured they did, uh, you know, overall, too. If, is that accurate? It is very accurate. When Bernie found out what George had done to him and descended into alcoholism, it was Bootsy Collins and Will Calhoun that I reached out to because there's a limit to what I could do for Bernie at that point. Oh, he needed his men friends. See, when Bernie left P-Funk, he didn't just leave a group. He left brothers. This is a man who was an only child. He has a sister, but she was 18 years older than him. So he basically grew up as an only child, pretty isolated, studying, doing what he was told, not, quote, running the streets, unquote. So when this group of people put Bernie in, he called himself a nerd. And these were the bad boys, the street boys. So can you imagine what it was like for Bernie? I watched George and Fuzzy teach Bernie how to box. So when Bernie had to walk away, and believe me, it took a lot of proof to get Bernie to do it because he was so loyal to George. Hands down, the stupidest thing George Clinton ever did in his life was to treat Bernie like poop on the bottom of his shoe. Because Bernie was so loyal to George. It wasn't until I had an audit done and showed it to Bernie that he realized what George had done to him. So when Bernie finally walked away, he walked away from his brothers, everything. And it hurt him deeply. So that um, intervention or outreach that you mentioned with Bootsy and uh, Will Calhoun, what, what year about was that, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Let me see. Had I divorced Bernie yet? I think it was right before. I'm not good with dates. If you keep asking me dates, you're not going to get an answer because I don't remember. I have to backtrack when my son was born, when my daughter was born. Um, all I know is I actually spoke to Bootsy because I know men don't like to quote unquote interfere in another man's anything. So I had to get his attention and explain to him just how bad it had gotten. And I know Bootsy talked to Bernie because that day after he talked to Bernie, Bernie was a little bit different and Bootsy stayed in touch with Bernie. And to the day I die, I will love Bootsy for that. 
Did same did, thing with Will. Did did um did Bernie practice much at home, you know, and things like that? I mean, did you no, get to absolutely not. No, 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 no. <laughs> People have asked me that for years. Bernie played so much that when he came home, you know what he liked to do? He liked to sit outside and listen to the birds. He liked to be in nature. One of the things he um, loved the most about his piano teacher, Mrs. Faye Barnard B. Kent, was that she lived in the Watchung Mountains in New Jersey, and she had a rock garden. He described it to me. We duplicated it in one of our houses later. And he told me that when Mrs. Kent and his mom were talking, he would go outside and sit by the rock garden, which had a little waterfall, and listen to the birds. Bernie made music out of anything. Birds singing, leaves rustling in the trees, cars driving over cracks in the road. Bernie would begin beating out a rhythm. Hmm. So when, when, he, um, when he did leave P-Funk, um, I assume he was treated much better by you know people like the Talking Heads and Bill Laswell and so forth. Pardon my profanity, but held to the air. Hmm. Period. I believe that the reason George did Bernie the way he did is jealousy. I believe that George Clinton is jealous of musicians. Because how else can you treat such creative people so badly? Well, did you get a sense like there was some of those similar issues with Bootsy and George too? Oh, oh, I don't know what went on with George and Bootsy. I was with Bernie. I was wife. Bernie and I married twice. After I divorced him, it took him a while to get himself together. And then he flew me to England. Uh, I think he was playing with the pretenders then. And to make a long story short, we remarried. At which point, he asked me to be his manager because he no longer trusted anybody. Um, so I was with Bernie. I was never around other people's discussions about business. The most I ever heard from other people would be early on when um, we st they stayed at this place called the Hollander House in Detroit. Bernie and I were in a bedroom all the way in the back. And the guys who hadn't hooked up with some poor female were living throughout the house. And they had no money. At one point, I offered to cook one meal a day for them if they did the cleanup afterwards. And then I told Bernie, this, I was, we're going to be here. and We got to move. I can't live here. So Bernie and I got out and got our own apartment. So that was about the only time I would hear because George would come over and have meetings with them. And afterwards, this or that one would be stomping through the house about you. money. You have George, blah, 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 blah. Because at the time, George was living in a house with a pet pig. But they had no money. Oh, no, I didn't listen to, nor would I have been able to, nor would I have wanted to hear any business discussions with anybody else. What, what was your biggest challenge as Bernie's, I, as Bernie's manager? <laughs> getting him to listen 
One thing I never did was agree to anybody. Well, no, that's not putting it correctly. Bernie made his own decisions about what he wanted to do. I didn't even bother to give him input. I would just say, so-and-so wants you to do a session, and this is what they're paying, and this is when you need to be, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, you want to do it. And he would invariably say yes. There was only one time in Bernie's entire career that he ever had objections to anything. And that was when Mammoth Records wanted Bootsy and Bernie to co-produce George. And Bernie had come out of his second rehab by this time. And he was staying on his program. And he said, uh, I can't go. George, George can't be doing, doing that crack around me. I, I can't smell it. I can't be. I said, no problem, sweetie. I'll write it in the contract. But then you have to follow up and do what? I said, if he lights up after it's in the contract, you have to walk out. What if I don't want to? I said, let me tell you why that will work. Because I will put it in the contract that if George lights up and you walk out of the studio, that you are paid in full and you won't walk back in the studio while George is there. Okay. And that's what I did. And that's how it was done. Hmm. Those record, uh, the mammoth stuff has never seen the light of day. Nope. It was really funny because when at one point I warned them, I said, you know, you're going to get billed for a lot of stuff that George does in other studios. Oh, uh, uh, we're aware of that. I said, okay, yeah, well, that's exactly what George did. He put old boxes and boxes of crap that Bernie couldn't even work on until he made sense of it. And so I just laughed at Mammoth Records because my father used to say there are none so something as those who, none so something as those who won't hear. So, you know, it, see, that's the thing about George. He is so intelligent and so charming when he wants to be. And just like Donald Trump, they're two brothers of another mother. They're both sociopathic narcissists. Nothing matters to George Clinton but what George Clinton wants. And anybody that thinks any differently is just falling in line, which is why. When I negotiated on Bernie's half, I wouldn't talk to any of his minions. Well, George told me to call. Was that, 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 you know, if George wants to say something, have George say it. Dunbar would say to me, well, why? Because he told me to call you. I said, because you, I said, in Bernie's camp, I am a person who can make the decision immediately. I can tell you yes or no if Bernie's doing something. I do not have to consult him. In George's camp, the only person that can do that that George is willing to let do that is George. And if you think that I'm really ready to talk to any minion who can't make a decision, that's a waste of my time. No disrespect to you, Ron, but go back and tell George that when he's ready to really want Bernie, he knows what he needs to do. And I wouldn't hang the phone up on him. I don't have time for that foolishness. George could play with everybody else, but I knew something even Bernie didn't recognize. Bernie was that important to George. Example. Mammoth Records wanted something. I don't remember what. Oh, they wanted Bernie to sit in with George at Woodstock. And I said, well, no. I said, Bernie Worrell and the Woo Warriors will open for George Clinton and P-Funk. And... 
then Bernie can sit in. And they said, no. I said, okay. Well, we really want Bernie there. I said, apparently not. I hung up. I hadn't spoken to George in years. I get a phone call. I want Bernie there. What do I need to do? And I repeated it. Then we negotiated how many songs Bernie Worrell and the Woo Warriors would do and how many songs Bernie would sit in on George's. Bernie, with five other musicians on stage, blew P-Funk off the stage. 1995 Woodstock. And I laughed my ass off. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um. How, how did um, Bernie pick musicians for his own group? One second. For the original um, Bernie Worrell and the Woo Warriors, we had a very good friend, Jackie Smith Perrine, lives out on Long Island now. And she put together Catherine Russell, um, the incomparable Catherine Russell. Uh, let me see who else. Lamar Mitchell. Uh, Winston Roy and Van Romaine. Van Romaine on drums, Winston Roy on bass. Uh, then we weren't making as much money for gigs to be able to afford them and the others started coming in. Um, and once people knew that Bernie was putting a band together, everybody was recommending everybody else. So if they could play and Bernie was okay with them, They were hired. Now, when it comes to the uh, Bernie Worrell Orchestra, that all started because of a man named Evan Taylor. Remind me to tell him what he's doing now regarding Bernie. But anyway, back then, he got in touch with me because he wanted Bernie to do a jazz standards album. So we agreed and negotiated, and Bernie's standards came out on CMH Records. Well, then it was decided between Evan and I that in order to promote the album, they would form a group. Evan put the, keyboard, the um, musicians together, all a bunch of young guys. Bernie used to call them the youngsters. Um, all really nice guys. Um, I remember some of their names. Scott Hogan on bass. Uh, and Shlomi Cohen was one of the horns. Omar, no, Ofer. Asaf was horns, Justin Mullins, Glenn Fitton. Oh, God, I'm forgetting some. Sorry, I'm 75. Part of my brain don't remember everything anymore. They've done a dump. <laughs> How did Bernie feel about, uh, you know, when he started his own solo record? Bernie did the one uh, solo record with P-Funk, but then he started his own with uh, Funk of Ages and so forth. Was he a reluctant front man, or is, did he want to do solo records? Yes. <laughs> no, he did not. He did not want to be a front man. When Bernie and I remarried, and I, he asked me to be his manager, I said, under one condition, you have to form your own group. Oh, mumble, mumble, grumble, grumble. I said, Bernie, all these record companies know that you are a phenomenal musician. They know you're a genius musician. What they don't think is that you confront a group. And that's what they want, because you have to tour. I'm a babysitting all those people. I said, okay, what if I do it? What if I handle everything but the music? Would you do that? 
to my everlasting regret, I said yes. And so, at various times, I became a booking agent, a road manager, a tour manager. <laughs> but, <it laughs> oh, God. Yeah, no, Bernie did not ever want to front a group. If you were to ask Bernie what he really liked the most, he would tell you that he likes variety. He likes playing with a variety of different musicians and all different types of musicians. Look at it this way. Think of a little kid who's never played with anybody, always was by himself. And this is an analogy. And then all of a sudden, he's taken to a playground where there's a bunch of other kids who like doing exactly what he does, and some do it differently, and he gets to learn from them. That's what excited Bernie. Playing alone did not excite Bernie. One time when he first started out with P-Funk, now, one of my favorite instruments is anything with bass tones, all right? So I rock the floor. That makes me happy. But I said to Bernie one time, you know, I can't hear you What with all the guitars and whatnot. And, you know, can't you play a longer solo or a little bit louder? And he goes, no. And I said, why not? He says, hon, because it's got to fit. And I never forgot that. And that's why people call Bernie tasteful. Bernie never, was never a musician who tried to overpower somebody else um, in any kind of way. And that's another reason he was so valuable, even though uncredited and unpaid by our good friend George Clinton, as a producer. Because Bernie would not put his keys up in the mix at the expense of somebody else. That would never even enter his head. The, the coloring and depth that he gave to the P-Funk songs, just astounding to me. And also the horn arranging and just, you know, I mean, he meant so much to that whole canon of all-time great music. Well, two things about that. Make sure you mention Fred Wesley because Bernie was delighted when Fred got there and he didn't have to do all the horn arrangements anymore. Bernie deeply respected Fred's playing ability and musicianship and his ability to write those, those horn arrangements. Some of those are, are Fred Wesley, not Bernie. Yeah. Well, and the other comment I have to your statement is it's just too bad that George Clinton didn't view Bernie and the others as every other sane, intelligent person does. But he will soon. <laughs> Judy, what, what was your impressions of uh, Gary Scheider? I don't... I didn't know Gary. I don't have any impressions of him. Okay. We did not, Bernie and I did not socialize with P-Funk. When he was off the road, Bernie wanted to be home. He, well, before we had our son, uh, my daughter was there by my first marriage. He was very much into taking care of his mom. Um, You asked before, was he an introvert or an extrovert? Very, Bernie was very much an introvert. 
He liked to be alone. He was used to being alone. And I'll tell you something I didn't find out until we've been together over 30 some years. I was saying something to Bernie and I glanced over at him and his eyes look like men's eyes look when their wives are talking to him and they're not hearing a thing. So I waved my hand in front of his eyes and said, are you even listening to me? And he grinned. <laughs> he looked over at me with this beautiful smile and said, no. <laughs> and I said, I've been doing all this talking and you didn't hear a word I said. What were you listening to? He said, music. I said, Bernie, do you hear music in your head all the time? He said, yep. I said, every day? Yep. 24 hours a day? Yep. That must be a pain in the ass. Yep. <laughs> and that was a conversation with Bernie. <laughs> And up until that time, I never realized that he had constant music in his head. And while some people, especially musicians, might think that's a wonderful thing, no one wasn't. He get, didn't get very much peace. Brains have to stop sometimes. Blessing and a curse, yeah. Did, being an introvert, did he uh, seem to... Um, prefer being in a studio as, a, as opposed to on stage? Both for different reasons. He was creating, well, he was always creating. Um, both. He enjoyed the audience feedback. And remember, Bernie had been performing for audiences since he was four years old. So nothing new to him. Did he ever uh, express to you, you know, one or two of the compositions with P-Funk that he was most proud of? No. Because he didn't think that way. But I know one he didn't like and he didn't want to play it was Insurance Man for the Funk. He was baffled. Why did they like that song so much? I said, I have no clue. Maybe it's because they can sing along. The only time I ever heard him say he didn't want to play a song that he had done before. Wow. Well, that's like 12 minutes or something like that on his album. He likes what he liked and didn't like what he didn't like. I never knew why. Because Bernie's response to a question I would ask often was why? I don't care why. Well, I do. It makes me figure things out. Well, that's you, not me. I don't care. <laughs> I can laugh now, but then it was exasperating. Banging heads over it, right? Not really. There were so many other things to bang our heads over. We didn't. <laughs> I didn't waste time with the small stuff. A lot of times things Bernie said to me like that amused me because I understood it, even if I didn't agree. I mean... It was logical. I could see his point of view. I may not agree with it. Well, what choices I would say to him, I like to understand things because then, you know, we can talk about it. Yeah, see, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and at that point, I'd bust out laughing and he'd look at me totally perplexed at what I was laughing at, which would make me laugh even more. But what I was laughing at was the truth of the matter. He didn't bother to lie to me and say, yeah, well, we can discuss it. He just told me point blank, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but he didn't ever try to serenade or woo you through his piano or something? 
Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. The very first time he did it, Maxine was having, she lived on Long Island. I was visiting with my daughter, who was her goddaughter. Um, oh, no, Dawn wasn't there that day. Anyway, um, they were all downstairs rehearsing. They all got up and left. Bernie, Fonsa, come. And then Bernie went to walk outside, which he did every evening. And I said to him, can I ask you where you go? Because it was a residential area. I mean, I was like, where the heck did he go? So he looked at me and he smiled and he said, come see. So I did. This is all very uncharacteristic of me. I didn't talk to guys, especially musicians, because I didn't want them thinking I was a groupie. And I didn't get up and walk anywhere with some man I didn't know. But I did. But we walked around. He handed me a joint. I had my first joint that night. And then I came, we came back. I sat on the couch and I was looking out the great big picture window with a full moon. This is a true story. And Bernie sat down at the piano and began doing his Hannon studies. Hannon studies are classical, like, things to keep your fingers exercised. And it was beautiful. And at one point I looked over at Bernie and saying thing. He looked at me and he winked and he smiled. That was the first time. But he told me afterwards that he didn't know that I liked classical music. I said, I told you I liked everything. Um, the next time I remember it distinctly was one of my favorite songs by Carlos Santana is Samba Pachi. And our friend Jackie used to manage the Grange Hall in Greenwich Village in New York. And she always gave these kick-ass New Year's Eve parties. And Bernie Van and Winston would perform. And one night I was talking to somebody and all of a sudden I heard Samba Pati. And I looked over at Bernie and he winked at me and smiled. And I knew he was playing it for me. He actually put it on one of his albums, too. I know the songs Bernie wrote for me. Hmm. I thought you were going to mention the album name, but... Which album? That he put that song on. You mentioned. Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> we'll look, we'll Bernie look for worked it. on over 500 albums. You know, I don't remember. Oh, I thought it was one I of his know solo it albums. I know when I hear it. It was. Okay. Um, uh, I think it was the one by, with, he did with Laswell. It's not on standards, because that's the one he did with Evan. I could look it up, maybe. We'll figure I'm out. I'm afraid you... to do anything on this. I might disconnect you. Yeah, that's fine. Um, thank you for sharing this, though, Judy. Um, so I assume that you had a chance to see the Mothership show, though, in the 70s? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what was your like take when you first saw that or experienced it? Were you just took it in stride, or were you kind of blown away? I have been a science fiction fanatic since I can remember, probably age five. Unlike kids in video games today, we were given library cards. And we were taken to the library, and I delved into science fiction. Dune, Osmoth, Heinlein, all of them. So I thought it was cute that it was a, they were able to reproduce a mothership landing. It was a coup for a black group at that time. And everybody was very excited. 
I was excited too. I thought it was gorgeous. Just the the crowd response and the communal experience of it was just so, to me, it was spiritual. Yes, definitely. Do you have, uh, Judy, a couple of your favorite Bernie tracks, Bernie songs? Oh, God, I don't remember the name of it, but I had Melanie take off the screaming female parts that Georgia put on it. Um, again, I could go to his website, and it's you can actually hear it. There's a place you can click on that has a medley of Bernie songs. Those are my favorite songs, because I had Melanie West is my best, 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 best friend. She was a recording engineer. She did her... Um, thesis for her master's degree on interactive media on Bernie. And she also was a recording engineer at Sigma Sound in New York and Philadelphia. So I turned to her because I said, well, George has ruined the song again. She said, what happened? I said, he's got all these screaming females on this instrumental. Can you take them off? And she said, yeah. So she did. And now I like the song. <laughs> what was that from the? P-Funk, but asking me which is P- my favorite. Was that from the P Funk era or after it? The one you were talking about right now? Oh yes. Oh no. If George is on it, it was the P Funk era. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, asking me what's my favorite Bernie song is like asking me how do I like my dark chocolate. I mean, I like it over nuts. I like it over this. I like it over that. There's nothing that Bernie could play I wouldn't like. How is that even possible? Unless he was deliberately doing those chords that I hated that gave me a headache. And he would do that because he would be making a point. Because he told me one time, um, I can make people do anything with music. I can make them the F word or I can make them um, fight or I can make them this or I can make them that. And that's, that's been echoed by many musicians of the effect that music has. As a matter of fact, that's the basis of the story Bernie and I were writing called Tales from the Universe. What was the goal for the story? Oh, it's not done yet. I might have possible interest. It basically is about music and what music can do. So you envisioned and it, it uses as, various. As a- as a book or a documentary or what? As an interactive game for very young children, totally devoid of all sex, all blood and guts, none of that's in it. Absolutely none of that's in it. So, strangely enough, somebody might have interest in it. I'm just trying to reach somebody. See if she has interest in it, which will make them have interest in it. You know how it goes. Did did Bernie uh, get, you know, did he appreciate the level of innovation? You know, how people regarded the level of innovation for things that he did with like the Moog base for, you know, something like flashlight and so forth. Not till the end. 
while it was happening, he wasn't paying very much attention to people's reactions. I mean, again, he'd been getting reactions since he was four years old. They just became adult amazement or more adult amazement. And people tend to say the same things. Bernie was always very polite. I remember one time when he wasn't, and we were in Japan, and I went somewhere, and I came back to see Bernie walking out, smoking a cigarette, and four or five females following him, carrying everything. I said, whoa. Oh, we help. We are. No, 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 no. I'm an American woman. He can carry his own stuff. Right, Bernie? So he grinned at me and grabbed his stuff. Oh, we help. We are. No, 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 no. You're ladies. I'm a lady. He can carry his own stuff. And afterwards, I told Bernie, please don't do that. Don't use your fans. Oh, they wanted to help. I said, yeah, right. Tell that to them. So we laughed. He knew I knew what he had done. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.